Hello, you are listening to Beyond the Briefcase, a law school podcast with Sarah and Meg. Listeners, this is one of our many interview episodes. In these episodes, we bring a guest to talk about their experiences navigating creative and innovative areas of the legal profession. Law school application season is also upon us. Hopefully, the following episode will bring you some clarity about your own process and choosing the right law school for you. We are extremely excited to be introducing our guest this week, Aaron Baer. He has a business degree from Ivy Business School at Western University, has his JD from Western University as well, and is the co-founder of 4L Academy that provides classes to both lawyers and law students. So to start off, Aaron, we wanted to start with your own experience in law school. So during law school, we saw that you completed an international exchange in Singapore. So we wanted to know how that experience was for you and if you would recommend that law students look into similar exchange programs. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of exchanges. I think I probably learned more on exchange than I did at any other semester of my entire academic journey. Obviously, a lot of that learning was outside of the classroom. Uh, you can imagine that laws tend to be pretty, you know, regional or jurisdiction based. Uh, so I was in Singapore and obviously Singapore's laws don't directly apply to Canada, although you actually did take a really interesting course uh, comparing laws in different jurisdictions, which was fascinating to realize how much of what we take for granted as normal is really just either a North American bias or a Canadian bias or things like that. But I think in reality, an exchange is an amazing opportunity to explore new places, you know, to travel, to meet people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And obviously, most of that learning is out of the classroom and most of that stuff. So if you can afford it, if you can spare the time, uh, I think it's an incredibly valuable experience. If you can't, not the end of the world. Uh, I've sort of looked at it and said, okay, I'm going to be working a lot. <laughs> in real life, travel is going to be limited. And I've got four months where I can kill two birds with one stone. Uh, not the world's worst opportunity. Uh, and I had never been to Asia, always wanted to go, and Singapore in particular is a fantastic travel hub uh, to explore Southeast Asia. So for me, it was something I always wanted to do and uh, had a fantastic time there. I would highly uh, recommend people explore an exchange uh, if they can. And can you just clarify for the listeners, did you do this in 2L or 3L? What did that process look like? Great question. So I did it in 3L, and I think that is the norm typically, although at some schools there may be some other opportunities um, I was doing a bit of an atypical program in that I was doing a dual degree in business and law sort of at the same time. So when I started law school, I actually hadn't finished business school. Uh, so then I did an exchange on top of that. Um, and I did a law exchange, obviously, not a business exchange. Uh, so it was my first semester of 3L. Uh, so it was a perfect opportunity to go away and then come back and be with our cohort as we finished up law school in Canada. Um, but yeah, typically in third year and typically, you know, you've got a lot more flexibility in terms of electives. Whereas in first year, you don't tend to have much of a choice. So, uh, you know, they're not going to let you do it then. Let's put it that way. And so in Singapore, is it common law as well? Or do they function under the civil law? Uh, it's been a while. I believe they are a common law jurisdiction. So they are, you know, former British colony or whatever you want to call it, like Canada. So lots of interesting similarities in terms of some of that history. Um, but their jurist, their laws are quite different, you know, whether it's uh, <laughs> some things that make the news, like the death penalty, which is still a thing there, and other, you know, laws that some people from Canada might consider a bit draconian. Um, but a lot of, there's a lot of similarities. And obviously, if you look at certain things like in intellectual property law or other things like that, there's lots of consistencies around the globe in those ways. Uh, so you can imagine I was not taking detailed courses on Singaporean criminal law or things like that. You know, I chose courses that were interesting to me. And also I figured would have some applicability. Um, the other nice advantage of an exchange is that in law school, you know, most of your courses tend to be either 100% or, or heavily weighted exams or paper-based, which means uh, there's a lot of flexibility, let's put it that way, for traveling and having fun uh, because you don't really have a lot of group projects or things throughout the semester. So from a maximizing your exchange experience standpoint, if we're being real here, uh, that is definitely a, a great part of law school here. Uh, not the case for a lot of other programs. Yeah, Aaron, I was just going to ask you about the work life slash um, busy slash fun uh, kind of comparison. You know, I mean, listeners, while we're recording this, we're going to be starting law school. We're going to be starting 1L in about a week's time. 
And I think one thing that we're definitely nervous about is the workload. But it sounds like to you, your experience in Singapore was a wonderful way to cap off your your education because it allowed for um, obviously practical and theoretical education, but then also a really great um, fun time to like meet new people, see new things, meet different culture as well. Exactly. And at most schools, like the the, the exchange is going to be pass fail. And uh, as you will discover in law school, it is pretty hard to fail a law school class, right? So as you probably know, you know, most courses are curved uh, u of t of course being an exception with the way they grade but at other schools traditional grading uh, but either way you're on a curve and so while it may be hard to do well in law school or at least hard just just mathematically right most people are going to end up in the middle it is very hard to end up fully off the curve and failing the course and obviously uh that is i think again conducive to an exchange you know i learned a lot in the classroom but again it allows you to sort of balance your priorities with whatever they're going to be in reality that's funny because that's actually one tip that we were given for our intensive course that we're starting next week, which is legal methods. It's a pass-fail. And so a lot of students that I met, at least, during the welcome day were telling us, don't be too stressed about it. It's very, very difficult to fail. Just make sure that you're doing the work, but don't be too stressed about performing because it's exactly. very unlikely that you'll completely fail the course. Exactly. If you do absolutely nothing, maybe you'll fail. But, you know, if you exercise any level of common sense and try a little bit, I suspect failure is pretty much impossible. Yeah, exactly. It makes sense considering it's our kind of introduction to law school. Exactly. It would be a real bummer when to step in to dip your toe into that pond and immediately drown. Absolutely. I mean, should we move on to another question? Yeah, for sure. So... You co-founded a blockchain and cryptocurrencies group at one of the law firms you worked at. And so we just wanted to know what did the projects you worked on look like? Yeah, so um, in a past life, uh, I worked at a large uh, Canadian law firm. So I was there for two summers. So one all summer, I was lucky enough to get a job. Two all summer, uh, articled there, was an associate, and then became a partner. And, And along the way, um, had a chance to, I guess, figure out, you know, what I want to do with my life, what kind of lawyer do I want to be? And I think anyone listening to this, you know, most people don't have the answer. And if they have the answer, they're probably wrong. Uh, like, it's not the kind of thing that most people sort of know what they want to do. Um, so you know, as the blockchain cryptocurrency sort of wave was kicking off, um, I was already familiar with a lot of the stuff just from some friends that were in the space. And it became pretty obvious to me that we should probably start a group at our firm. There are lots of interesting opportunities out there. So I co-founded uh, that group back in 2017 or whenever the big ICO boom was for anyone who's familiar with that, uh, worked on various things. I would say at the time, our firm was not doing too, too much in that area. There were lots of companies looking to capitalize on, uh, you know, just like AI now is a big thing. Um, you know, back then, I think there were companies doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff. Some of them were doing real things. Others were, again, capitalizing, I would say, from a marketing standpoint. My current firm now, uh, Renault & Co., uh, which is a boutique firm, I think we can confidently say, although the law society doesn't like us saying it, but I think we can confidently say we are the top firm in Canada for, for blockchain cryptocurrency work. And we work with the vast majority of, or at least a sizable portion of uh, Canadian companies in the space who are doing real things. Um, obviously, uh, the narrative has changed, I think, a lot over the last five, six years. We've seen all sorts of scams and this and that, but there are a lot of companies doing real things in the space, building a lot of really interesting stuff. And we're lucky enough to work with a lot of them. Um, but I would say, sort of going back to your original question, you know, at, you know, in most cases, areas of law already exist. So, you know, as a junior lawyer, you're not going to start the M&A group or the privacy group or this or that. You can't. Um, but I did see many people at my old firm, for example, when uh, the cannabis space was picking up in Canada, you know, they realized, hey, there's an opportunity here. Nobody has more experience on this than me, by me meaning anyone, because the laws were brand new and it was a brand new area. Right. So there are definitely things that will come up where even at a junior level, you can actually become an expert. And that's really interesting because there are, again, you're not competing with people that have 40 years of experience because it was impossible. It didn't exist. So definitely an interesting opportunity there to start that group. Uh, Blockchain cryptocurrency, still lots of stuff happening in Canada. It's a heavily regulated area and there's lots of changes all the time as we continue to see how regulators approach it. Um, So I don't spend too much of my time in that space. I sort of do more general corporate uh, work but I end up touching a lot of those files because lots of my colleagues are working on these things. And so, hey, if a company in this space is buying another business, well, that's M&A. That's work I do. So I need to understand this stuff, but I also don't need to be a deep, deep technical expert in these sort of things. Uh, so that's sort of uh, was my experience there. 
That sounds amazing. I mean, you know, we had this other, and I think now a rather rhetorical question of whether or not you think this is an evolving and growing area for, uh, for law students to look into. But I think something else too is because you have this joint legal and business background, it sounds like the way you really approach furthering your career and your profession is with this kind of entrepreneurial mindset. And I think that is really interesting to hear. You know, I'm someone who comes from um, traditional academia. I did a couple of degrees at Columbia. You know, I was really looking towards going into the academic world. I have a lot of friends who are really interested in, into going into government. And it sounds like you're able to share with our listeners this really un unique side of things, right? Where you're not just working at, you know, the top four, you know, uh, like big law and things like that. You're taking those kinds of perspectives with the kind of new technology and, you know, this kind of untrodden territory and you're making things up as you go. That sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, there's definitely lots of traditional paths and you know, most schools will sort of steer people there and there's nothing wrong with those paths at all. I certainly went down those paths, uh, worked at, you know, a big firm, did the, I guess, OCI or equivalent process and, and all of that. Um, and I'm glad I did. It was a great way to start my career. I think I reached a point, we can talk more about it after, where my entrepreneurial needs were becoming too strong and for for the entrepreneurial willingness of the firm I was at. And so I was, you know, an entrepreneur uh, within the firm for a while. Uh, but eventually I needed the ability to sort of do a little bit more of what I wanted to do. And I like being a lawyer. Uh, I'm like, I think a lot of people who leave law, they're like, oh, I hated this, for example. I'm like, no, no, I like being a lawyer. I like the work I do, but I want to do it differently. And I want to do some other things at the same time. And I want to dabble in this and that. And that model is much less common still. It's much more of this, you're a lawyer or you're not a lawyer, or at least you're not a practicing lawyer. So like, hey, I no longer practice, but I now do this, or I am a lawyer. And this bifurcation, to me, I'm like, no, this is a spectrum. And I don't see why I have to spend each day, why can't I wear multiple hats each day? And I, I'm lucky I get to do that now and happy to talk lots more about some of that stuff and, and all the good stuff we have on the go as to sort of, as you said, um, I don't want to say uncharted territory, but definitely atypical territory. But I think the reality is, you know, the path that a lot of younger lawyers, people going to law school now or recent grads want to be on is not quite the traditional path. And it's still an interesting time as firms and other players in the space try to figure out how do we accommodate these things or these wants and needs? How do we provide opportunities for people's skill sets that may not just be law to shine and all that sort of stuff? So it's definitely a time now that I think is quite interesting and people are getting much more open to how do we really leverage the talent we have? And, and that is something the legal profession has not thought a lot about in my mind uh, before. And just a question for you. Myself, having worked in more of a traditional corporate environment and granted not legal <laughs> in compliance, I just wanted to know if this is something that you noticed as well in the legal profession. Is there some kind of resistance to change and to adapting to the new environment? That's at least something I saw in my job when I tried yeah. to introduce any innovative ideas or any changes, there was a lot of resistance. And so I just want to see if there's a comparison to be made in law as well. Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, I, I, I would say, previously I would definitely would have said resistance to change and adapting stuff. I still believe that. I, I do think there is more open-mindedness. I think a lot of people struggle to actually execute on it. And part of that reason is the way that most law firms are structured. So, you know, people on the outside might think a law firm is a business and it sort of is, like it is a business but they're not run like normal businesses, right? So if I ran a big company normally, to have a CEO and stuff would report down, you know, like you tell people what to do. There, there's a clear structure and a clear consistency across the organization, or at least in a well-run organization. Law firms tend not to work that way. Um, they're often described as fiefdoms. So, you know, each partner running their own little, uh, little empire over there. And, you know, you're not convincing one person, you're often trying to convince a whole large group of partners who have dis different needs, interests, timelines, this and that. And that makes, and law firms tend to, you know, not want to force people to do stuff because if they annoy a key partner too much, maybe they leave, they bring their business with them. And before you know it, you've caused a problem. And so all of that and many other factors that we won't get into here just mean that change is often very slow. There's a lot of resistance and there are often incentives set up to avoid change. So like the AI stuff that's going on now is fascinating because the tech is easy to understand. People are going to use it. And it goes completely against the existing business model of billing hours and being inefficient and stuff like that. So we're in an interesting territory there. Um, I will say selling to law firms, which I spend lots of time doing, is probably the world's slowest sales cycle in terms of, again, approvals needed, timelines, this and that. 
but I, I do think, again, from all the conversations I have with people at firms who are, for example, in charge of training for students and younger lawyers and things like that, there is actually a lot of appetite to change. The challenge is, again, there's just so many things going on. A lot of buy-in is needed to do certain things, and that makes pulling the trigger or whatever the better expression is uh, challenging. So I think that is part of the, the challenge is like there is that resistance to change, but then there's also just internally making change happen. They're not always set up for that. Uh, and it makes things uh, tricky to say the least. So I think the pandemic, you know, 2020 forced firms to really expedite change because all of a sudden they had no choice, but we're back in a world of choice and uh, it's easy to stick with the status quo. Let's put it that way. It's a very sticky thing in law. Yeah, definitely. So it seems to be very political. I'm at least used to that, unfortunately, <laughs> um, with the company I was working at. Um, and that explains why change is very slow. But I like to hear the fact that people are more open to change and especially people who are training and working with law students. So I think that's a good thing for us that maybe even if we go into a bigger law firm or something like that, and that's the path that we have when we start a career, that there yeah. is a chance for us to kind of break through and make those changes. And potentially we know which actors to bring in on our side to help make that happen. I think so too. And I think this is such important information for people to know because I know that the traditional uh, pipeline, if you will, right, is to do your four years of under, at least in Canada, is to do your four years sure. of undergrad and then to go directly into law school and then directly into uh, into work. So to some extent, it's really hard to know, especially when you're just starting out, what all of the different options are. So it feels really easy to just be forced into like a specific um, trajectory. Whereas for both Sarah and myself, uh, we you know are able to bring in a couple years of experience from elsewhere. So that's why you know one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because both of us are to some extent quite resistant to just going down the status quo path. Like we're really interested in asking these kinds of questions, and you know like what better to learn about these other options from folks who work in all sorts of different um, sectors and with different philosophies. Um, do you want to do you want to just share with us, you know, what's the kind of philosophy that you prefer um, in, in the in the workspace? Because from what we understand, the firm that you currently work at operates um, differently than others. Uh, and yeah. we'd love to so, hear. I mean, we would love to hear a little more about that. Yeah. So um, on on my end, you know, I, I had plenty of experience working at a traditional firm, and that had pros and cons. And again, very glad I did it. Every firm is unique. All those sort of things. Um, but I will say, you know. Uh, many firms are well behind the times in terms of uh, modern or best practices for uh, training, uh, HR, people management, uh, technology, process, you, know, like, you, you name it. And so, uh, and that was certainly the case for the firm um, I was at where I felt uh, we were just not doing what was, was needed. And that was, that was obviously frustrating for me. So when I left the firm I was at and I was thinking about what do I wanna do next, it was a question of where do I go? And the options were really any other big firm in theory, uh, which I figured, you know, every firm's gonna be different. Some will be more aligned with what I want than others. Um, but I figured it would be a lot of the same in reality. And so I figured, okay, if I go somewhere different, much smaller with people who are aligned with me intellectually, uh, that would be a great opportunity. So joined this firm, Reno & Co. in uh, June, 2021. And uh, we were very aligned in terms of our views on how tech should be used, uh, how we treat people, um, how we treat clients, the kind of work-life balance or integration or whatever word you want to use that we wanted for our lawyers. Like we were fully aligned on sort of that vision. Uh, the execution uh, on their end was not quite what it was supposed to be, uh, but that's a whole different story for running a law firm and a million lessons learned over the last little bit. Um, but we, at this point now, I can say our culture is fantastic. We've got a great group of lawyers who are treated great. They're compensated well. They're fulfilled. They're working in areas they want to work in, and we help them with everything in that sense. Uh, we are a fully remote firm. People can work for whatever the heck they want, subject to you know little tax things that we need to be mindful of. But like there is zero forced attendance, unlike on most firms that are trying to force people back. We will never do that. Um, we you know we we do so many things internally to build a culture, build vulnerability, have authentic conversations. And really, the short answer is how and why are we able to do this? We have super low ego, especially amongst myself and the other leaders of the firm, but generally amongst people at the firm, we've made lots of mistakes. We're open-minded to fixing everything, and I'm no expert, so I just read all these books and listened to a million podcasts on what you're supposed to do, and the modern ones, and I'm like, great, let's do that. That seems to make sense, 
and we do that. And we are constantly iterating, constantly changing, constantly improving. So I joke with every group of students that comes in, the firm that you know you join will not be the firm you're leaving three or four months later. We will be a different firm by the time you leave, and that has been consistently true. Always a better version of that firm. So you know, right now we're recording this in August. We'll have some students joining us in September uh, from TMU for their articling. And when they leave in December, they will be leaving a different firm, and the people coming in January, different firm, and so on and so forth. So. We're at the best version the firm's ever been, and we'll be at a better version <laughs> three or four months from now. So we just operate with a very different mindset, and it also means everyone's voice is heard. We want feedback and insight from everybody. We don't care if they're a student, if they've been around the profession for a million years. I tell you that is not the case at most law firms. So it's uh, a very, very different world, but I wanted to work at and build a firm that'd be a place I wanted to work, and I had a pretty good firsthand experience at what it was like to work at a firm I didn't want to work at. I am fascinated with the idea that it is a rem completely remote practice because like, you know, not to go back to suits, you know, uh, sure. the mandatory suits <laughs> mentioned, right? But like, this is the kind of image that I think incoming law students, right? Prospective law students, uh, folks who are not interested in law whatsoever, they have this idea that you have to wear fancy clothes and you have to work in tall buildings, right? And it sounds like your case is, is not that at all. Yeah, no, it's definitely not that at all. So, I mean, we've got a team spread out. We've got people in the US, India, Quebec, uh, Newfoundland, and Ontario. Um, person in India is not a lawyer, to be clear, um, but, but certainly a key, key uh, person on our team. Um, we, we learned how to run remote there. The reason remote has failed in so many organizations is that the people do not adopt remote best practices. And I, I personally believe hybrid is the worst of all worlds and is a terrible idea, even though that is the reality. Um, hybrid is really hard to do well. In fact, I would argue impossible. And I think most of the big firms, most firms in general, have really struggled with how to do remote properly. How am I an expert? I'm not. But as I said before, read a bunch of books, learn from the people that are experts, and we're like, okay, let's take those best practices, let's iterate, let's tweak. And it's it's an unfair advantage on our end. We can hire anyone in the world we want. Uh, we can have people who can live in lower cost of living areas. We are not wedded to the same small group of people. They can have flexibility. They can work whatever hours they want as long as it fits like generally what we need. And that's pretty great. It also means people can go on vacation or work remotely for a month in the winter and like all the kind of stuff you would want to do, you can do. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's an unfair advantage. And honestly, I could never go back to an in-person environment personally, but more importantly, how we run our firm in terms of how we document stuff and how we're building stuff, it's just so different as a result. So we are, <laughs> we are on an unfair path, I think, because of our ability to do that. And I think it's also appealing to a lot of younger lawyers and law students because they're like, yes, I like this ability. And if you want to work in person, we have a WeWork and you can go there and we have in-person team stuff and this and that. But yeah, no, you can work wherever you want, which is which is nice and it's flexible. And I wanted to know, how is it to work with a team that's cross-provincial? So you did mention having employees in Quebec. So I was just curious how that works because of the fact that, of course, in Quebec, it's it's civil law and elsewhere in Canada common law. Um, I'm just asking because I myself am from Quebec. And so I'm yeah. curious a bit on how that works in your firm. Yeah, so there's there's lots of you know rules that apply in terms of what work lawyers can do and what they can't do. And so I've learned some of those because this is all sort of new to me on that territory as well. Um, but generally speaking, you know, our Quebec lawyers uh, will do the Quebec work in particular. They'll also work, they'll dabble in work in other stuff. Uh, lots of laws in general, just Canada-wide. So there's plenty of you know federal laws, for example, and, and this and that. Um, and so we'll always make sure we have the right people on the file uh, with the right oversight, obviously. But I would say Quebec is certainly a an outlier, right? It's got it's the only civil law system in Canada. Uh, it's got very different rules. There's more recent, uh, you know, French rules, let's call it, uh, that uh, you know that that we're navigating. And, and as a firm with people in Quebec and based out of Quebec to start, we have to navigate. Um, but all I have to say is, um, uh, like, I'm not doing Quebec-specific work, for example. So, uh, but there are lots of clients we work with that have a mixture of Quebec and Ontario or other things like that. And it's good to be able to help serve clients in multiple spaces. There are actually not that many firms that actually service both Quebec and Ontario, especially boutique firms. So we're one of the rare ones. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, other than that, it doesn't really affect things uh, at all. I think, um, you know, where people are physically based. Again, we, we, we know how to interact with people remotely. We've got all those best practices in place. But Quebec is definitely an exception in that uh, what applies elsewhere in Canada often does not apply in Quebec from a legal standpoint. 
And uh, obviously, we've got a good grasp on that, and our Quebec lawyers uh, know this stuff. Exactly. I think that's great and very helpful to be able to advise your clients, um, just because it being so different, and especially navigating the language laws that are not necessarily as common elsewhere. I think it's great that they're able to go to one place to get all of that help. I've had to work with my own company on the Charter of the French Language and the changes yeah. brought on by Bill 96. And I know how hard it can be and how complex and difficult for people to understand if they're not coming from Quebec. So I think it's great that you're able to do that for your, your clients. Absolutely. One last question about the general kind of work you do before we move on to 4L Academy. Um, so Erin, sure. a lot of your work has been in legal tech, um, and we spoke a little bit about that earlier um, in, in this interview. But what would you say is the most uh, pressing issue in legal tech today? Yeah, so I definitely spent plenty of time in the legal tech space. Um, the way I sort of got started, just to quick, take a quick detour, then I promise I'll, I'll bring it back, um, is was doing a bunch of work on the legal tech side at my old firm. So was driving innovation internally, leveraging the tech, helping people learn to use it, all that sort of stuff. And people therefore assumed, oh, he must be interested in like tech for like clients. And that's how I actually started doing a lot of work for, for tech companies in, in Toronto and in other places in Canada and developed a lot of expertise and experience in that space. So... Um, uh, all I have to say is I do a lot of work with yeah, tech clients, and then there's also the legal tech component. So, you know, leveraging technology or processes in theory or other things to, you know, provide better legal services. Um, so legal tech, I would say, you know, just for anyone listening, is usually like tech that's meant for lawyers. So like ChatGPT, I would not consider legal tech, whereas a tool like Closing Folders or Kira or other things that many people may or may not have heard of, these are tools specifically for lawyers or legal teams to leverage to do their job. So that is more like traditionally legal tech. Um, I, I think, you know, the biggest thing obviously happening right now at a lot of firms is AI. So figuring out what they're going to do, how do they deal with the privacy issues uh, of chat GPT or equivalents? Uh, should they be developing their own internal tools, leveraging, you know, the, the APIs or this or that, and really trying to figure out like what is, what's going to happen here with everything that's on the go? Because there is no doubt AI is going to transform the practice of law, like it's going to transform everything. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, it's not going to mean none of you will get jobs, but it will have changes at some point in terms of the work people do. And I think that's a good thing. Honestly, clients deserve it. Uh, you have yet to have experience working at a law firm, but I can tell you lots of junior associate or student work is less than fun and quite repetitive. And so the ability to not have to do that work or to have, I really should say, um, support doing that work and to be able to leverage these tools can be great. Um, so AI is definitely a big thing. In general, though, there's been, I say, a lack of adoption of just technology and good tools in general by law firms. When I say adoption, I actually mean adoption in the utilization sense, not the traditional adoption sense. I think in many cases, firms have adopted tools but fail to use them at all or use them well or sufficiently. In other cases, they simply haven't adopted tools. And again, there's so many reasons for that. There is internal resistance to change uh, that we talked about in the whole kind of incentive system. Um, there's the general incentive system of being inefficient in theory gets rewarded currently. So why be more efficient? And so suddenly you're selling an efficiency tool as a non-efficiency tool and having very fascinating conversations to try to get people to do it. There's a lack of awareness. There's a lack of motivation. People are too busy to learn to do stuff, but they're too busy because they don't know how to use the tools and so on and so forth. And then I think in a lot of cases, the legal tech companies haven't actually understood how to help people really use these tools. And so part of what we do with Forel Academy, which we'll talk about more in a bit, is actually we've built some custom stuff because we are lawyers who use these tools all the time. So we've built our own training for some of the stuff to be like, hey, like here's how you actually use this tool well. Here's how we're using it. And here's the stuff you really need to know. And if you can learn this and we can teach you, holy smokes, it is, it's, you're going to transform your practice. And I cannot believe that you are out there you, not using these tools and doing the same work I do. Like I literally cannot comprehend what you're doing it makes no sense to me. And more importantly, you are just doing so much more garbage work, taking up way more time. And it's totally unfair to the client. Uh, and you, you know, this is why you're partly unhappy being a lawyer is you don't realize that you don't have to do this work anymore. It can be done for you automatically and everyone is happy and you know, you can upskill yourself and do much more meaningful work. So yeah, adoption is always a thing. And right now AI is definitely the hot topic of the day. And I'm curious to see where it all uh, plays out. That's amazing. It's great that 
you're offering courses so that junior lawyers, lawyers can know how to use the tools. Because from what I'm hearing, at least, I'm assuming that law firms haven't implemented that yet and are probably not providing the appropriate training. And it's definitely not something that we're going to be seeing in law school, at least for now. Maybe it will come. Who knows? So I think that's great because people who are able to actually enroll in your classes, attend your classes, I feel like they're going to have an advantage and be kind of a step beyond everyone else and be able to bring that expertise, teach others, and potentially help the firm also that they are a part of or going to be a part of. Absolutely. You know, some schools are certainly ahead of the game. Uh, Some firms are ahead of the game. Um, But I think we've got a unique ability because the people who are teaching and building our courses, including obviously myself, are all practicing lawyers. Whereas at most firms, the people in charge of these things are not practicing. They actually have not been in the trenches doing this for a long time and may not realize the reality in some cases. And typically at law schools, the people have barely practiced law, if at all, and just don't have the understanding of what it's like to be a practicing lawyer and how to work. So we have, again, sort of an unfair advantage in that we uh, are doing this work. We understand it. In some cases, we, we in almost all cases, we know the legal tech companies well. They are taking our suggestions to build their tools in many cases. And we're just incentivized because we care. Like we want people to be enjoying law and happy and want to help you know clients as well. So. Uh, yeah, definitely uh, people who are taking our courses are working with us. They definitely have an advantage there. And, you know, we are lucky. We work actually with your law school, for example. So U of T, we've done some stuff with not on the legal tech side, but on some other things. And I know there's definitely law schools that are, are very open to thinking about these things. They just have to be willing to accept the need for some external help because, unfortunately, their professors typically and lecturers they just don't have this experience. Or if they do, they don't know how to teach it. We, again, have the experience. We like teaching it. We're good at teaching it. And we've literally custom built stuff meant exactly for this. Exactly. And that's really important. Just something that you raised, the fact that oftentimes professors and everything like that are not necessarily going to be active in the industry. And considering that law is ever evolving and can change very quickly, that's something that's very important. I feel like, unfortunately, it's kind of of something that's lacking across education in general at least from what I've been seeing working in private education. Hmm. It can be a problem where the curriculum curriculum builders, sorry about that, haven't worked in the industry for a long time. And so it's possible that what they're bringing to students is outdated or maybe not the most efficient approach. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's one of these things where, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's a classic expression, those who can't do teach. And we're, we're trying to break that model, obviously. And I'm not suggesting that is the case for, for everyone in law schools. But I will say that typically most people who, to, to, to be a law school professor, you literally have to have a PhD, which means you spent a lot of time researching things. And almost every law school professor I've seen practice for a hot second. Maybe they are, they articled and like, uh, they maybe worked a year at most. And they generally hated practice. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but all I have to say is their their expertise is not in this stuff. Uh, it's in researching, it's in all this sort of stuff. And so we, again, we've got that teaching expertise and interest and the substantive expertise, and we're literally using these tools all the time. So there's nothing that we're teaching on that we aren't using every single day in our practices as well. That's wonderful. Now, Erin, I know we're kind of like trailing around what 4L Academy is. So I actually (laughs) do want to have like a formal description of 4L Academy, um, which provides public courses for law students and junior lawyers and provides them with advice and knowledge that they need to succeed. Can you tell us a little bit about what 4L Academy is, uh, what motivated you to start this company and the um, specifics, I guess, into the, into the topics that you focus in these courses? 100%. So, yeah, when I was leaving my old firm, uh, the, it was a long time coming to leave, but the final motivator was to get 4L Academy off the ground. And the irony is 4L Academy was actually something I wanted to do for free at my former firm uh, of blending substantive training, legal tech training, and doing it all in a modern kind of pedagogically sound way teaching people the what, the why, and the how. So what they need to know, why they need to know it, and then how to do it in a modern way. And unfortunately, my previous firm was uh, not interested in that. That would uh, be too too good. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of backstory there. And anyway, so so left uh, to do that and to join my current firm, which I now run uh, as well. And so Foral Academy has evolved a ton. Uh, when we started, uh, we ran courses our first summer for free, and they were in corporate stuff and litigation. 
and our corporate courses did great. Our litigation courses did not so hot. And I'm not a litigator, and there's only so much I could do to to build them and iterate, right? Like I, I only know what I know. And we ran our litigation course again uh, that fall, and similar feedback. Some people loved it, some people less so. And we said, you know what? Let's double down on what we're good at. We know corporate stuff. I can build these courses. We're getting great feedback. There's nothing else out there on the market. And it's desperately needed. In law school, if it teaches you anything practical, it is certainly much more litigation focused than corporate focused. So okay. So we we pivoted to, I guess, what we'll call like a hybrid kind of model now, in the sense that we have really two core offerings. There is the actual courses, which are typically paid. Um, so we work with uh, a lot of the big firms. So we run the national training for junior associates for some firms, for example. So Canada-wide, they basically realize, hey, we're really great. We leverage, they leverage us, and it's been fantastic. Uh, so some firms are running private courses. Others were running public courses. So that means uh, anyone can join those courses, and the firm can choose, and they just sign up one person, 10 people, five people, whatever. So those are paid. Um, in the summer, we run courses for summer students. And in the fall and the winter and stuff, we run courses for articling students and junior associates and things like that. So these days we've got about eight or so courses and lots more in the pipeline. They range from substantive courses to pure legal tech. And then most of the substantive ones incorporate legal tech as well. And basically our training is uh, way better than any other training other. It's super practical. It's really engaging. There's no lecturing. It's not boring. It's all remote. So, you know, you don't have to come to an office and do this. Uh, it's the training that I wish I had and the training that so many people wish they had. Uh, we get feedback on every single class we do. It's uh, live feedback. It's anonymous. It's like right after. So we know. We know what's working. We know what's not working. And even when we're getting scores, which is typical, like, you know, in the 9.5, 9.8 out of 10 range, we're still like, great. How can we make this better? So we've never run the same class identically twice. And we are incentivized to keep doing a great job. So that's the substantive. Uh, that's the sort of the paid stuff. Everything else is free, and we do a lot of free stuff because this is not, we're not motivated by the money. Uh, this is really, for me, it's a mental health business masquerading as a training company. So for me, uh, my mental health took a huge toll as I was a junior associate when I realized, or mid-level, I should say, really, because I didn't know what I was doing. No one had given me the training I needed, and I, was, and I went through this long process of learning and teaching on top of doing my job. It came out of that. It was like, why the heck didn't you just teach it to me this way? This wasn't so hard. But I needed to understand how everything connected and why I was doing things and this and that. Um, and so in addition to the courses, we do all sorts of stuff. So like for OCIs, for example, which are the big way that people get jobs, like we've written the guide that pretty much everyone uses now and it's totally free on like the OCI process, like demystifying that process and democratizing that information. And we run free sessions um, throughout the year to help people through that process, whether it's uh, resume and cover letters, whether it's navigating interviews, like that's all free. Uh, incoming summer students, uh, so usually in 2L, your first real job, guess what? We Another long thing on that, like literally everything you need to know. Um, stuff for 1L, so uh, by the time this episode airs, we'll have run our first session, but we run a session right, right before law school starts for people. Again, that's all free, and we've got written resources and exam prep stuff, literally like the best guide that exists for exams. It's all free, and really the goal here is like, how do we reduce anxiety? How do we level the playing field in a profession that has far too much inequity? Um, how do we do all that? So those resources are all on our Notion page, which is hard to find, but if you go to 4lacademy.ca, you will see a link to that stuff, and it's all there. Um, but basically our goal is to continue to build all sorts of free stuff. Uh, the courses are currently the only thing we charge for, and anything that's currently free will always be free. We're, we're not trying to build something and then pull a fast one on people. Our goal is to level the playing field, make it fair, and really reduce anxiety in a, as Nikki, you probably both know, uh, this profession and law school, uh, mental health ain't great. And our part of our goal is to make things a whole lot better and, and do what we can to help. That's amazing. I love how you said that you don't teach the same course twice, because that's similar to what you said about not running your firm like the same firm you know the students that you bring in when they come yeah. in the fall and they leave in the winter that's not going to be the same kind of environment so it sounds like to me your general work ethos is all about adapting and being very fluid to transformation yeah we are constantly iterating and there is no pride of ownership uh, if if people you know feel like we're not doing a good job or if anyone complains about anything it's like great there's there's something to that uh, generally with 4L, our feedback, thankfully, has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, 
which doesn't surprise me. Like we've we spent so much time building these courses and and practicing and, and preparing and systematizing and this and that. Um, but yeah, there at the end of the day, like you know, if all you're doing is doing the same thing every year and just hoping it's good, which is sort of the traditional model, if we're being honest, because uh, certain people have a monopoly, uh, then you know it, it is what it is, or an oligopoly, I guess. But um, no, for us, it's really you know how do we get better, how do we improve, and I think the profession as a whole has not been overly open historically to iteration, to change, and it's definitely not their ethos. And there's actually a number of firms I've been talking with recently. They're like, yeah, we're trying to build this culture of change and this. And it's like, it's hard. You're trying to literally change an organization where people have been so accustomed to not doing that. For us, it's the opposite. It's really, okay, everything is up for debate. Everything is up for negotiation. You know, we're all just focused on how do we do the best job possible? And when you have that as your goal and not ego and not other stuff, it just makes it a lot easier to say, great, how do we, how do we make this better? And personally, I'm extremely excited to be using your resources starting in, in 1L. And what I love is that, like you mentioned a bit, it's quite difficult for incoming law students to find resources. And I don't know if it's because of the competitive na nature of law school with um, the curve, like we were talking about, and everyone being ranked against everyone else or whatnot. But I have noticed that it's difficult to find just things to guide you and to give you an idea of how exams are going to be, how to write a proper, a proper case brief and everything like that. And so I love that you and your company are making that available for law students. And on top of that, for free just makes it even better for us because we all know that we're coming in and we're going to be drowned in debt. <laughs> and and also Sarah you make such a good point because I feel like law school especially um and you know I I I've again I've come from uh, more of the academic uh kind of MA MPhil PhD side of things. Yeah. The law school process I found it to be you know sometimes purposefully daunting uh the pedagogical approach it's purposefully hard to access things like you want to you create this kind of um, scarce scarcity mentality yeah. or this kind of like innate um, competitive uh, kind of mentality when really what it should be is opting for accessibility and opting for a collaborative approach. Right. And so. Um, you know, I've had some experience teaching, um, but teaching in the academic sense, teaching, you know, undergraduate students. Sure. And to me, this sounds like I, I wish I had spoken to folks like you and thought more about this when, when I was teaching, because it's so hard to implement these in um, systems that exist already, particularly very established, uh, prestigious systems. So it sounds like, you know, for you, able, you know, the fact that you were able to start these things and um, do that kind of work from the ground up, you're really implementing uh, values that I think law students going into 1L should be implementing from the very start. A hundred percent. Yeah, we're we're a bit lucky in this in the sense that we report to nobody other than like the, you know theory, we got to stay on side with the law society rules things like that. But you know, I don't have to get it like at my old firm. You know, when I was doing a lot of internal initiatives to try to help and drive change. Oh, the head of the associates committee and the students committee and the managing partner and my project, you know, all these people who, you know, were, were either needed approval or felt the need to approve things in many cases I, I didn't agree with. Um, and, you know, we operate essentially with no one to report to now, which is great. We, we are guided by what our customers or our users or our stakeholders want. And that informs a lot of stuff. When we have ideas, we can just do them and see what happens. And we've tried a million things, some of which we'll never do again. They weren't you know, bad. They just didn't have the result we wanted, and that's okay. Like we're we're iterating, we're experimenting, we're launching a ton of new stuff. Um, you know, in the coming months. So we've got this for the first time. We're going to have uh, representatives at each law school. So by the time this airs, they'll all be full. Uh, but that's something where you know we tried some stuff in the past that didn't quite work. I'm toying with this idea, which will likely be announced if we do it uh, by the time this airs, of having office hours, which we talked about a million years ago, but it didn't make sense. But now I'm like, you know what? I've got a way I can fit this into my life that will actually help people. It'll all be free. How do we have an office hour once a week for 1Ls? How do we have a separate one for 2Ls and 3Ls? How do we have the same one for articling students where, like, again, this can fit in my life at a time where I already got to be doing other stuff, in this case, like taking my kid to daycare? Great. That time's allocated? Okay. Being on a call is fine. Um, how can I help people? So, like, we don't have to ask for permission. We can just be like, hmm, that's an interesting idea that might help people. Let's try it. And if no one shows up, then we'll cancel it. 
But if people show up and we're helping, then amazing. Um, so there's lots of stuff like that. You know, like we're launching sort of unrelated to 4L. We've got like, an awards we're launching um, later this year. We've got a conference that I now run every year uh, called the Authentic Lawyer Summit. Uh, so AuthenticLawyerSummit.com, which is, again, totally free, all about having real conversations in the profession that we're not talking about enough. So like real talk on mental health and other stuff and, you know, DEI issues and things like that. Uh, so, you know, we just created these things out of thin air. I'm like, someone should do this. And I'm like, why, why can't I do this? Um, and what I found a lot in this profession is that there's actually a lot more people than you think that want to change things. They're just not going to do it themselves. They need someone to take the lead. There's a lot of people that will like to join stuff. So, you know, if you're interested in change, like you guys are starting this podcast, right? Now you've got guests, right? You took the initiative to start something and then you get to sort of do whatever you want. So that's, I think, the fun part. Like there is opportunity to drive change. You just sometimes have to drive it outside of traditional structures. Uh, and I learned uh, the hard way. I thought I could transform a, a larger organization and it became pretty apparent after a while. Just wasn't going to happen. The appetite for change, the incentives, the uh, skill set of the firm's leadership and open-mindedness, it just wasn't there. Uh, and so, you know, I needed to be out of the confines of that environment. But there are is lots of appetite for change if you are willing to take the lead for sure. I love that. Oh my goodness. Should we should we go for our last question? Yes. Okay. We try to ask this question to all of our guests, just because I think it's such a wonderful way to end um, end this episode off. Okay, so Aaron, given your wide array of work in diverse areas of law, as well as your interest in pedagogy, what do you think is the number one piece of advice that you would give to students starting law school? It's a good question. It's tough to just say one. I will say we, we do actually have a free resource um, uh, for one else where we, we surveyed a bunch of lawyers on this stuff previously and we put together. So it's on our, our website or really on our Notion page uh, in the one else section. Um, my general advice for anyone starting law school, though, is that uh, everyone else is as clueless as you are. They might just be better at faking it on the outside. You know, you're not. it's like social media, right? You know, you're seeing the, the highlights or whatever you want to call it, not the reality. And so uh, you are in the same boat as them. Or, or in most cases in the same boat where they don't know what you're doing, just like you don't know what you're doing. Uh, I will also say it tends to end up working out for everyone eventually. Uh, people are going to be on different paths. They're not always going to get to that desired place as quickly as others or in as streamlined or, or straight line kind of way. Uh, but it does tend to work out and everything that seems insurmountable and the end of the world at the time uh, generally is actually not going to be so i mean at the end of the day your job in laws i mean you know what what is the goal of law school that's a whole different question but in most people's case you know your main motivator is to try to get a job and if you're trying to get a job you need good grades so i would say you know try to try to do okay first semester first year that would be ideal uh don't overwhelm yourself with extracurriculars or things like that like obviously you should do stuff or try to but at the end of the day grades matter um, and you may not be accepted to various clinics, various other things. I was certainly rejected from plenty of them based on who knows what. And like, again, not the end of the world. Um, and I guess the last real piece of advice I'd give is your, your law school classmates are your future colleagues. They are your future clients. They are your future opposing counsel. They're coming back in your life one way or the other. And you'll, you'll be shocked by where people end up and who knows where you end up. So uh, be respectful, be kind, and all that sort of stuff. But I cannot tell you how many times I am dealing with former classmates of mine uh, who, yeah, became colleagues, became clients. I'm dealing with on the opposite side of transactions and uh, having a tolerable relationship or a tolerable reputation uh, goes a long way. And the more you collaborate internally with people and don't see them as competitors, even though you're on a curve, that will pay off long term. And, and long term matters a whole lot more than short term. Exactly. That's great advice. And I find it also feeds into some of the things we talk about in our how to build a strong network episode where we also say that you don't know who is the next person that's going to be opening up a door for you or giving you an opportunity and so it's important to really just remain kind regardless of where you are and what you're doing and so I think that relates to what you said in terms of all of our fellow law students and, and colleagues and everything like that that we will most likely be working with them in the future and so it's important to establish positive relationships with them or at least cordial because it's for sure we won't like every single person in our cohort. They probably won't necessarily all like us either. But at least if we can have, you know, a polite working relationship with them, that's really important. And um, I also love what you added in terms of the competitiveness 
Um, I think that's something, at least for me, that's something that I was scared of before starting law school or talking to law school graduates, that there would be a lot of people trying to undermine other people. or Sabotage. Put, exactly. <laughs> that's a terrible word to use. Exactly. Sabotage them. And it's a terrible word to use, but it's true, unfortunately, in some programs. I was in a program in college where that's exactly what was happening. But at least from the people I've talked to, I'm glad to know that it seems like it's not the case, at least consistently in law school. You might have that one person (laughs) that that's their strategy. But for everyone listening, please don't be that person. Everyone is going to have access to the same resources. And all you have to do is focus on yourself, working hard and just remain kind and help other people. Helping other people is not going to prevent you from succeeding. Amen. 100%. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Let's wrap this episode up. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Briefcase. It was so wonderful to have Aaron on the show. I feel like Sarah and I learned so much about the world of legal tech, about uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency, about work ethic and remote work as well as student mentoring. Uh, Aaron, we would love to know how folks can get in touch with you if there are any um, social media or other kinds of websites, other kinds of accounts you wanna promote, please feel free to do so now. Yeah, two great ways to do that. So first one is on LinkedIn. So Aaron and then Bear, B-A-E-R, you'll find me. I tend to post fairly regularly, inadvertently built up a good size thought leadership presence on there during the pandemic, which was not the plan. So definitely a good place to follow. It's also where we share a lot of resources too, uh, including all sorts of free stuff. Literally, as we were recording this right before, we just announced one of the 1L events, for example, that we are running. So definitely follow me there or feel free to connect. The second place is the 4L Academy mailing list. So if you go to 4lacademy.ca and scroll down to the bottom on the left, you will see a way to subscribe to that. And that will get you on our monthly uh, mailing list, which will tell you about all sorts of events and other initiatives and good stuff like that. Uh, So, you know, LinkedIn doesn't always show you every single post. So the best way to make sure that you're getting updated on all we're doing, volunteer opportunities, paid opportunities, free stuff, courses, you name it, is to make sure you work your way onto the mailing list and that you receive our monthly updates. We'll have all that information in our episode description. Next week, we're gonna be talking to Paula Price. We're gonna be talking about what it's like to be a consultant, uh, what it's like to start your own consulting business, what it's like to empower women in law, as well as what it's like to do all of that, as well as start and manage your own podcast. It's gonna get pretty meta. Uh, Please rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends, and check out our social media. Check out our Instagram. At Beyond the Briefcase Podcast. To keep in touch with us, uh, with episode details, as well as upcoming events and questions and everything like that. Thank you so much to Adam, our tech producers. And thank you, listeners. I've been Meg. I've been Sarah. Bye.